Hello again, everybody. Welcome to Uncommentary. I'm your host, Marty Duran, and this is a live-ish podcast. Uh, that being, it's not going to be edited, so my audio editor, James Peach, will not be on the hook for any uh, mistakes that are in this episode, uh, any background noises, people ringing doorbells, or my guest coughing into the microphone. Uh, none of that stuff will be James's fault, uh, but I'm really excited to have uh, Dr. Heath Carter with me today. Tomorrow, uh, from the time we are uh, recording, but not tomorrow from the time that you're probably listening, is Labor Day 2019. And uh, several years ago, when I was young and stupid, I didn't know that Labor Day had something to do with the labor movement. I thought it was everybody taking the day off because they'd worked so hard. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I was enlightened to the fact that, no, this is actually kind of a celebration of labor. And uh, me, being the uh, diehard Republican at the time, just did not like that idea at all, even though family members were in uh, the union movement. Uh, my dad, my father-in-law, uncles and whatnot, uh, and friends and people at church and all this kind of thing. So I had this kind of cognitive dissonance about unions today, uh, Christianity, the Republican Party, and all these kinds of things as a conservative that I was unaware of. Uh, and then, not too terribly long ago, I was enlightened to the fact that Labor Day is actually kind of a memorial or celebration of the labor movement. Uh, it's not just a day for me to take off. And then a couple of days ago, or a couple of years ago, uh, I was made aware of a really, really unique book called Union Made, Working People and the Rise of Social Christianity in Chicago by Dr. Heath Carter, now of Princeton University, but I know him via Twitter. So, yeah. <laughs> Heath Carter, welcome to Uncommentary. Oh, thanks for having me on, Marty. It's great to be here. So, um, your bio says that you work or study and write uh, at the intersection of Christianity and the American public. So, I have a American public life, uh, which is a tremendous area of interest for myself. Uh, but you're you're probably the only uh, author that I've seen, and I'm certainly not saying there's no others. But you're the author, the only author I've seen that has covered the issue of the labor movement and Christianity in America which was, uh, as I've noted, quite a surprise to me. Even more yeah. surprising is when I picked up your book, you don't start with labor, you start with pastors. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, and you start before the Civil War. So all this stuff was like enlightening to me. So start wherever you think it's important, assuming, yeah. uh, and before you start wherever you think it's important, tell everybody a little bit about yourself, what you're doing, how you all of a sudden wound up at Princeton. <laughs> Yeah, so I'm a historian of American Christianity and uh, was a, uh, studied under Mark Knoll at Notre Dame. Uh, that's where I did my graduate work. And wow. then uh, seven wonderful years at Valparaiso University right outside of Chicago, where I got to teach a, a wide variety of courses on kind of modern U.S. history. Uh, but my, my interest, my expertise is really in kind of that intersection of Christianity and, and public life. And that's what I'll be primarily teaching here at Princeton Seminary. Uh, so it's a, a new adventure. We just got here to Princeton and and um, are excited to kind of settle in and meet meet the students. You know, our students here are all graduate students looking to to be leaders in church and, and the world beyond. So um, it'll be a, 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 I think, really exciting audience for the kinds of courses that I'll teach on kind of Christianity and politics and, and whatnot and the longer, uh, long array of American history. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think I think the thing that you know, as American sort of historian of American Christianity, I mean, part of what we've often known or long known is that uh, Christianity really became popular in the United States when it became more democratic. Mm. So in the colonial period, you know, very few people were members of churches. Um, you know, church was sort of a status symbol in the South. Uh, 
yeah, you had Massachusetts where it was a it was a real thing, but but you know lots of kind of uh, lethargic. Sometimes we think about the colonial period as this heyday of Christian America, but in reality, um, I think seven percent of American you know the colonists belonged or were members of churches. A really small percentage. Now, dude, that, uh, that can't be true because there was a Great Awakening and everybody got saved. I know, I know. There was a great way. And so it's, it's, you know, probably it's about what we count as, you know, membership yeah. versus attending <laughs> and whatnot. Uh, but I mean, the, the, the second great awakening, which began in the early 19th century, um, that's really when people start going to church in larger numbers. That's when you have the, the mass conversion of enslaved people in the mm. United States, really in the early 19th century, very few enslaved people in the 18th century convert to Christianity, which was a more hierarchical kind of thing. It's in the early 19th century you get the rise of evangelicalism, so kind of an evangelical tradition that, especially in its early days, is a little bit more um, leveling mm -hmm. in its sort of social implications. Um, so you've got Methodist uh, preachers on horseback and Baptist right. farmers, you know, and this idea that you don't have to go to Princeton Seminary or Harvard or Yale to get your MDiv to to preach the gospel, yeah. but you just have pick up the good book and read in it and, and you can find the truth there. And, and in that moment, you know, kind of the 1810s, 20s, 30s, um, the nation, you know, Americans across the nation, boom towns, urban boom towns, and in rural camp meetings are, are converting to, to join the church in large numbers. Um, but part of what my book is looking at is how you know, by the 18, by the time of the Civil War and in the decades leading up to the Civil War, a lot of churches got a lot of money. Mm -hmm. And they rent those place, pews out, buddy. Yeah, they rent those pews. I mean, this is a, right. Exactly. It's like <laughs> a hilarious thing. Most people don't know. I mean, you know, when the when the Constitution, um, you know, in the early Republic, you know, you start to see uh, the the um, disestablishment mm -hmm. of the church. Right. You know, where churches are no longer getting state funding. The big question was a lot of people worried about, well, our church is going to go under. Um, so, you know, people are trying to figure out how we're going to finance churches. And one of the big ways the churches were financed was through pew rentals. And in, in wow. cities across the country, um, you know, you're, you would, you would rent a pew and the more kind of in the front your pew was from more front and center it was, the more expensive it was. Uh, you know, it's kind of like if you go to Wrigley Field in Chicago today, you know, if you, if you get a seat behind the obstruction, they give you a nice discount yeah. price. <laughs> Same thing was true in, in late, you know, mid-19th century churches. If you got seats in the back or in the balcony or whatnot were cheaper, but yeah, they were selling seats and, wow. uh, and your ability. So, I mean, things like that, things like uh, pastor's salaries. I mean, it was in the 1830s that pastors were making roughly what your average laborer made. Mm -hmm. uh, but by the time of the Civil War, you know, especially in big cities, uh, pastors could get salaries that were often 10 times that that the average worker made. Um, you know, you got you had big, you know, a lot of a lot of churches in the 1820s and 30s were very simple kind of wood frame structures. By the Civil War, you have churches meeting in these huge Gothic cathedrals, which, yeah. you know, in many cases are still around if you're walking around uh, how cities. Many, how many people would be attending? So in a, in, a, in a church in that era when the pastor made five or ten times what the average worker made, how many people yeah. would be attending those churches? Yeah, yeah, it would depend. I mean, you know, a lot of times those were the kind of, uh, you know, your first Presbyterian, your first Baptist. Mm -hmm. these, are, these are downtown churches that you usually have like decent sized congregations, maybe a thousand people or so. And, and, uh, you know, they're, they are able to, 
afford to pay, you know, a very well-educated pastor to come in and, and to, um, you know, it, it, there was a status element yeah. kind of woke into the whole experience. And so, um, you know, I think part of what, part of what we, uh, yeah, you know, I, I don't know, uh, dear listener out there in radio land, we don't know what that dinging is. So just pretend <laughs> like you don't hear it. Sorry about that. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think part of what, you, you know, you start to see in these churches is is some resentment that grows up as Christian workers who, you know, had kind of come to the faith in a moment when it seemed like Christianity and democracy went hand in hand, um, start to feel like, well, wait a minute, maybe is it that, you know, um, why is my pastor making 10 times more than I am? And not just that, but it, it, it especially became an issue when after the Civil War, you, you get the emergence of real labor conflict mm. in the United States. And oftentimes that same pastor that's making 10 times more than you was taking sides with your boss. Ah. And that became the real crux of the kind of conflict within American churches was that, you know, Christian workers um, had grown up in a tradition where they learned that Jesus was a carpenter, mm-hmm. where they learned that uh, God was uh, on the side of, in some sense, the lowly, that he would lift up the lowly and cast down the mighty from their thrones. And, um, you know, it became a real question in places like Chicago, but not just Chicago. I mean, Chicago in my book is really kind of emblematic mm-hmm. of a much larger trend, which was that churches were on the side of big business. And, and that had not always been the case. I mean, in the early days of those revival meetings, there had been a sense that, that Christianity was the common person's faith. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, and, 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 and especially in those early days, it was the common person, whether that person was black or white. You know, eventually, you know, there, there, there starts to be real divisions of, of race as well as class. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, the more that Christianity kind of became identified in northern cities with the wealthy, the more resentful working class Christians became of it. Um, they really saw the labor movement, which got going in those years after the Civil War, as a movement that God would have been right on the side of. Wow, that's uh, fascinating. Yeah, and I think that is fascinating because so many times today, you know, when I when I teach uh, labor history to my students, you know, Christian universities, they have no context for wh- how is it that someone would see the labor movement as having anything to do with Christianity. Right. You know, and it's largely because we've grown up, you know, in, in an era where economics is seen as this science. It's seen as a kind of a uh, you know, it's it's the market. The market will do what the market will do, and it has nothing to do with the morality or the gospel right. or what. And and you know, I think that's what part of what's helpful about looking at this history, this longer history of Christianity labor movement, is to realize that, I mean, in the, in the 19th century, there are a lot of Christians making this argument. No, the economy too falls under the the judgment of the gospel. Mm. And and we shouldn't pretend as though spreadsheets and supply and demand charts get us off the hook for thinking about what are the moral implications of doing business yeah. in, in the modern day. Um, and, and I think that that's part of what, when I was doing the research for this book, I found so invigorating and interesting was just thinking about, you know, and, and, and entering into these conversations that Christians were having kind of freewheeling debates about, you know, what does it mean to do business Christianly? Mm-hmm. Um, and and similarly, you know, I mean, why? What does labor have to do with with the church? And that was the big fight of the late nineteenth century. One of the big fights was was this question of, you know, what is? I mean, 
labor disruption, labor protest. Is... See that that that. I mean, Americans are pretty ahistorical anyway. Uh, yeah, we, we live in the sure. moment, and nothing ever happened before yesterday. Like like a chicken, yeah. you'll wake up to a new day every day. And um, you, you know, my memory of I mean, my dad was involved in strikes because he worked for UAW, and um, so he was involved in strikes. We had family members that were. But typically what, from the time I was a young man and became aware of unions, and I'm using kind of scare quotes there, um, it was always uh, alignment with the Democratic Party, so it was alignment with pro-abortion or at least pro-choice politics. And I could never figure out what unions had to do with being pro-choice. And then I figured, oh, it's just all, you know, there's so much of the power involved. And if this party gets elected, then they're going to promote unionism. And if this other party gets elected, they're going to you know, push back against unions. Um, And so going back into any time where there was any kind of thinking that God's on the side of the worker, God's on the side of of the, the laborer. And yeah. that the laborer is worthy of his hire might have a broader application than just a pastor. Um, mm. it, it might mean that a businessman can't oppress or take advantage of a laborer. Uh, yeah. And so that unions kind of grew out of that mindset, just kind of like blew my mind uh, yeah. in, in some ways. So uh, were they were they basing this on that particular verse? Was that the one that kind of drove that movement, or was it more of a kind of a justice, this is what God would do? I mean, there's a lot of different passages that were big, uh, you know, important passages for the early labor movement. I mean, surely the, the labor is worthy of his hire from the Gospels is, is one, but, um, you know, people uh, would cite the six days that shalt thou labor, mm-hmm. and on the seventh rest as, as uh, evidence, you know, part of what they were fighting for was the six-day work week. I mean, now we have the, you know, hopefully, you know, more people have the five-day work right. week, but back then it was, a lot of people worked seven days a week, so six-day work week. Uh, those fights would often cite the Sabbatarian verses that are uh, that are throughout mm-hmm. Scripture. Um, you know, one of my favorite uh, stories I found when I was when I was doing this research was um, a guy named James Klein, who was a blacksmith who uh, became eventually became head of the International Blacksmiths Union, and he was a very devout evangelical. Um, attended a Methodist church in Chicago, and and he was invited one Sunday to preach before the or to speak to the kind of all of the Methodist ministers uh-huh. of, uh, of that conference. And um, Klein got up and he read from the fifth chapter of the book of James, which um, is all about kind of uh, a warning to the wealthy and, and who have stolen the wages right. of the workers who have harvested in their fields. I mean, it's intense. Yeah. Oh, uh, their gold and their silver are, are tankered. They're, you know, eating their flesh like fire. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, it is it is kind of fire and brimstone stuff. Yeah. And Klein got up and he read this passage before these ministers, and he said, "You know, I wish, I wish I heard someone preach on this passage because I've never heard a sermon on it." Um, and he went on to say he saw the book of of the you know he saw the book of James being lived out in his time. Wow. And, and he and he applied you know he took kind of a rift on this passage and and applied it to the meat packing industry and all these industries which. He, and he says, you know, they're they're uh, you know stealing from their workers and donating back in you know building churches and whatnot. But their their gold and their silver are cankered. They're burning their flesh like yeah. fire. And, and 
So, I mean, a lot of what, you know, you find, and part of what's interesting today, I mean, today we think about evangelicalism in the United States, white evangelicals, obviously, as being kind of, you know, pretty closely aligned with the Republican Party over the last generation. A lot of evangelicals were involved in the founding of the labor movement. See, and that they is did it, just, that's just mind-blowing. Yeah, and they did it because the Bible told them so. I mean, that's what's so interesting, right? I mean, I think they, they deeply believed, I mean, Andrew Cameron, someone else who, features really strongly in Union Made, and, and he was someone, he was a Scottish-born printer who was as deeply evangelical as you can get, and in, in 1867, the labor movement's getting going, and there's a strike for the eight-hour day, and, uh, and Cameron just believed in his heart that, of course, the churches were going to support this strike, because wow. the Bible told them so, wow. and when he saw that... Um, basically no churches supported the strike. I mean, he was deeply, he felt so deeply betrayed. And that's part of what's so interesting when you read these documents, right, is the sense that for so many Christian workers, a sense of betrayal by churches that they love. And, and you know, part of what ends up tipping the scales here, I mean, the story of the book is really the story of how over the course of about 40 years, um, you move from basically no churches, no denominations supporting organized labor right at kind of at the end of the Civil War, to most major denominations having some kind of pro-labor statement by the early 20th century. And the real hinge there is that a lot of Christian, a lot of believers who were working class people, mm. and this is what got me interested in this project, was thinking about like, you know, we know that the churches were kind of anti-labor, but what, what were those Christian workers thinking? You know, I, I grew up going to church and I knew that, you know, you listen to the sermon and you walk out and you go to lunch and you talk about that sermon, right? I mean, no, no one just agrees with the sermon. You always got to like, critique over lunch. Uh, so I wondered, you know, what was the critique? What was the, what was the pushback? And then what I found was so much pushback. Mm. And that's where, where a lot of kind of ordinary believers were able to get the attention of pastors and denominational leaders who were, and they basically said, look, we're out the door because we think you have forsaken Jesus, who was a carpenter. Wow. We think the church has gone astray, and, and we're out of here unless you are going to come back to Jesus. I wow. mean, that's really how I saw it. Um, uh, we're going to come back, and I want to pick up on this uh, about evangelicalism and the gospel with this, this movement. Um, my guest today is Dr. Heath Carter, and we're talking about not only his book, Union Made, Working People and the Rise of Social Christianity in Chicago, but unions in general and uh as you can hear, the historic place of uh, unions and evangelicalism. But before we continue, I want to uh, encourage any of you who are listening to support Uncommentary. Uh, no, I don't make a living off of this, and I'm definitely not getting rich off of this. But every little, <laughs> every little dime and every little nickel and every little dollar does help. So if you would be so gracious as to uh, give a one-time gift at paypal.me slash uncommentarypod, or if you would become a monthly supporter at Patreon for as little as two bucks a month. And there's some levels there. You can get a sticker or a mug and some other stuff. Uh, Patreon.com slash uncommentary. That would be awesome. Uh, you won't miss that fattening Coke and that snicker bar. And that two bucks will help me a lot or maybe three, depending on where you live. Uh, so right now we're going to go back to Dr. Heath Carter talking about unions and evangelicalism. So I want to ask you this question. You're talking about uh, the unionization, I guess, of, of workers, working class people in churches, and churches not always responding in the way that the workers wanted to. Uh, would it uh, tell me about the type of theology that was being espoused in these churches apart from the union movement? So, 
would the average evangelical today, a more conservative, say a Southern Baptist type of an evangelical, would they have considered those churches to be evangelical based on what we think is evangelical today? Did they preach, you know, salvation through uh, faith alone, by grace alone, through Christ alone, scripture alone, yeah. that kind of thing? Or, or would we have recognized it as what we consider today evangelicalism? Yeah, I think um, that's a great question. I would say many, I mean, the, the folks that I'm writing about in my book are, you know, across a wide range of different church contexts. And, and some of them are real radical kind of folks who are really interested in, in Jesus and who Jesus was, but who don't adhere to kind of traditional Christian theology. But someone like Cameron, someone like James Klein, I mean, these are evangelicals. They're going to evangelical churches. I mean, Klein is participating in the Sunday school movement and is like as evangelical as you can get. Wow. Um, you know, there are, and, and in fact, part of what I found and was so interested in is that in, in many cases, the, the theological liberals were as or more anti-labor than is the conservatives were. So odd. And it, well, and because it makes sense in the sense that, um, you know, for example, a guy, David Swing, who's famous in American religious history circles because he was one of the uh, first Presbyterian ministers brought up on heresy charges oh. in kind of the day of 18, early 1870s. Swing was uh, brought up on heresy charges because it was perceived that he, he didn't have a, a kind of uh, strong enough view of biblical authority. Hmm. Well, Swing was a, a liberal when it came to biblical interpretation, but when it came to labor issues, he was as conservative as you got. And it made sense because who were, who were the people that were attracted to that kind of liberal theology in late 19th century cities? They were wealthy, well-educated people who wanted to hear a preacher who had that kind of erudite, mm -hmm. learned German theology. Well, who could, who was into that? It was wealthy people. Yeah. And so Swing got up, and, and when the Pullman strike was unfolding, this kind of national, uh, you know, big-time big, big time, uh, labor strike in 1894, that's where you get, right after that's where you get uh, the origins of uh, the Labor Day that we know today, is right after the Pullman strike. Um, Swing is uh, deeply anti-union, and in fact, when he died, he died in 1894, not long after the Pullman strike, and the Railway Times, this labor paper, just utterly tore into him. Wow. And basically it's like, oh, well, you know, Swing, you know, who had his course, you know, granite bathroom. And I mean, just, you know, kind of making this big deal of this rich and fancy uh, heel, well-heeled preacher with his well-heeled congregation. They could all agree about, you know, uh, kind of the finer points of a liberal biblical interpretation. But when it came to labor, they were not labor's friend. And so. You know, I, I think part of what's interesting about the story I tell in Union Made is, is it's not a story of liberal theology leading to liberal politics. A lot of times liberal theology went very closely with a kind of anti-labor, pro-business kind of politics wow. in the late 19th century. Um, and sometimes it was your more, more conservative churches that produced those more radical pro-labor currents. That's amazing. So, yeah. Um, so... Would those people who uh, espoused a, um, a worker's uh, ethic, a union type of an ethic, yeah. uh, did they see that as uh, an extension of the, the teaching of the gospel? It sounds like to me that they saw that as if you take Jesus' teaching and apply it to our situation, 
we think Jesus would be on the side of the laborer. Is that what, I mean, is that how they, is that how they were thinking about it? Totally. Yeah. That's and, amazing. And it's just that, you know, if you, if you care about following Jesus, this is part of what that means. And, and, you know, it's that you can't, it's hard to understand how people who claim to take Jesus seriously. I mean, this is a moment when um, Jesus's own social location, you know, as a poor peasant um, himself, mm-hmm. uh, someone, you know, who, who didn't come from a lot, right? right. I mean, you know, there, there are moments in different, you know, moments in Christian sort of theological development. And, and the late 19th century, when you get the rise of the labor movement, is a moment where you're also, you have a lot of interest in, in kind of the historical Jesus, you know, not not necessarily meaning as opposed to a, a theologically rich Christ, but uh, just who was Jesus and what were his what was what were his uh, what was his context, yeah. right? I mean, you have a lot of interest in that, and and so people are are really newly focused on the fact that Jesus was himself poor, and spent all of his time with poor people, and so what are these? fancy preachers and their fancy churches where everybody pulls up in carriages. I mean, part of what's interesting, right? So, I mean, someone like Moody, who uh, is is around Chicago around the same time uh-huh. as the, a lot of books I'm writing about, Moody agrees with the people that I'm writing about when it comes to the kind of luxuriousness of the church. He has the same exact critique, and he, he thinks that, you know, the, the pew rentals are problematic. It's problematic that, you know, the, the ways that the churches are catering to the rich, yeah. in Moody's view, is an obstruction of the gospel. He didn't go the next step, yeah. right? I mean, he wanted the churches to to embrace a more simplistic kind of ethic and, and to be more simplistic internally. He didn't go the next step to support labor. Um, he wasn't really engaged around labor questions deeply on either side. He wasn't like a vociferous opponent of labor either. He right. just didn't. He didn't. He didn't himself see it as as being as relevant to the gospel as many of the workers that I write about did. Gotcha. Um, so there, there is, I mean, the thing that keeps pinging in the back of my head as you're talking about this is yeah. like the liberation theology that came out of Central America. Yeah. Um, or maybe South America or maybe both. Um, yeah. Because there's, um, I'm, I mean, I, I'm not an espousing liberation theology, but it, it always is fascinating to me how those theologies arise. They don't arise in a vacuum. And mm-hmm. there seems to be uh, that some of this is uh, not reactionary necessarily, but it is a reaction mm-hmm. to uh, situations where theology or churches or theological movements uh, are oppressing or holding down or treating some segment of society with either disfavor or unfair you know, disadvantage, that type of thing. Mm-hmm. And listening to you describe how this labor response to uh, what could be looked at as the church uh, in bed with big business or in, in bed with uh, income, for, you know, for lack of a better term, uh, sure. and, and that the, the theological drive of the labor movement was somewhat of a, um, uh, is correction too strong a word or is reaction a better word? Yeah. Um, there's no question that it came out of a, a sense in... Christian kind of working class circles that the churches, again, had kind of gone astray from their true identity. Okay. And so, I mean, I think, yeah, correction or reaction. I mean, it's a reaction to, you know, and part of what's interesting, right, is that you don't get a lot of critique of the church's close relationship to the wealthy until the churches join with the wealthy in 
fighting the poor. I mean, that's yeah. where you know, the, the, the real conflict comes after the Civil War. I mean, some of that kind of uh, coziness between the churches and wealth is developing in the 1830s, 40s, and 50s. But it's really in the 1860s and 70s and 80s and 90s when the labor movement's arising in response to just an extreme inequality, which gotcha. was characteristic of that moment. That's when, um, and when the churches don't take the side of the poor mm. in that context, which is true in Latin America and, and whatnot as well, where, um, you know, you get a response. And this is what part of what my work, I'm, part of what I'm interested in more broadly is, you know, who gets to say what Christianity is? Yeah. I mean, the push and pull, right? And I believe as a Christian that, I mean, part of that is uh, the Holy Spirit can work through, um, you know, the people. Yeah. And, and Christian people to call the churches as institutions back to, back to the truth, back yeah. to the way, and uh, that that push and pull. There's something. It can be something holy about that, you know. And 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 it's part of the long story of Christianity in the world, not just on labor issues, but on all sorts of issues. That you know, there's there's always a need for prophets and people who will stand up and call the churches to return to uh the truth and and i think you know that's what you see in this in this story so what happens to the uh, labor prophets when they stand up and try to call the churches back to the truth yeah there's a lot of resistance in churchly circles and a lot of people who say oh these these labor people are pre preaching a false jesus this isn't really you know and but i mean part of what i i think is true is that when when denominational leaders and pastors realize oh wait we're losing people that's why I think it's such an interesting moment for this story. You know, it is Labor, Labor Day weekend here. Um, we got a lot of people talking right now, not just in mainline circles, but in evangelical circles too. You've got slowing down of baptisms in Southern Baptist circles yeah. right now, right? Um, and so you think about, and you think about the nuns, N-O-N-E-S, and you think about millennials and Generation Z and the ways in which people are disenchanted with the institutions of the church. Mm -hmm. Um you know, in the in the Gilded Age, this period that I write about in the late 19th century, part of there was a similar kind of disenchantment, and and church leaders started doing these surveys, and they said, you know, what do we have to do to get you interested in church again? And they said, and so many workers said, support the labor movement. Wow, that is just amazing. Just did, and and it made a big difference. Um, you know, I think about that today. I I, I was speaking at a. a Camp over the summer, Christian kind of family camp over the summer, and talking to a young man, uh, 22-year-old, who, you know, just out of college, and, you know, deep, deeply faithful guy, but also really kind of disaffected mm -hmm. from the institutional church, and just kind of feels like it doesn't speak to him and his concerns, and what, what he is worried about in the larger world, and, and I think there's a real opportunity for church leaders today to, to say, sort of, seize this moment and speak to and I, and I also think it might come though I mean if you know in, in my book it comes from workers mm -hmm. I, I'd love to see uh, Millennials and Generation Z these generations that often kind of get a lot of criticism about you know they're 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 disengaged or whatnot I mean you know I've I've, I've taught these these folks they have a lot to say they want to make the world a better place mm -hmm. you know they don't see the churches as as connecting with their generation um, and I've encouraged folks that I talk to, you know, get involved and 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 go into those, go into your annual meeting at your church and tell them what you're worried about. Right. And 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 fight for the institution, you know, because that's that's where you get that resurgence and that vibrancy within the life of 
Christian institutions is when people fight for him. And I think that's what these workers did. My guest today on In Commentary has been Heath Carter, and I hope you have a happy Labor Day. Heath's book is, or one of them, you have more than one, yep. I think, right? So the one we've talked about mostly today is Union Made, Working People, and the Rise of Social Christianity in Chicago. What's, what's some more? Uh, yeah, I've got a, if you're interested in the labor topic, I mean, I edited another book called The Pew and the Picket Line, Christianity and the American Working Class, which has a kind of wide variety of essays on, on Christianity and labor across great the country. Title. Periods of time. Yeah, The Pew and the Picket Line is a, a wonderful book that includes, I mean, I'm not the only person working on this stuff. And, and so if you want to get a little tour of some of the, the other folks who are, are working, um, love that, love that, uh, love that book. And I would also point people, I mean, Allison Green wrote a book, great book a few years ago called No Depression in Heaven. It's all about kind of Christianity and labor in the New Deal era. Um, it's a wonderful book. Or, or Jared Rolls, The Spirit of Rebellion. Uh, interesting book on how a Pentecostal revival in the Missouri boot heel in the late 1930s brought black and white workers together to fight together wow. uh, in kind of the Jim Crow era uh, for economic justice. So um, you know, there is a, here's what I would tell you. There is a rich history of, of Christian support for labor. And as far as I can tell, I mean, there is no good reason why the most evangelical, the most fundamentalist churches shouldn't be able to get behind the idea that, um, God cares about the poor. God cares about working people. And, uh, uh the gospel has something to say about, about them, you know, and, and we could talk about unions. You could talk about the problems, some of the issues with unions and whatnot, and some of the concerns that the folks have. But um, sometimes I think evangelicals have, have remained on the sidelines when it comes to the union movement or the labor movement, you know, not, you know, sometimes just outright opposing it, but oftentimes not having much to say about it at all. And I think it's, it's a, it's an important area for Christian social teaching. It's the gospel has got a lot to say about economics. Yeah. If you read your Bible, there's just no question about it. And uh, so I, I hope uh, at the very least, you know, this Labor Day, people will be thinking about those connections. Well, happy Labor Day to you and happy Labor Day to you, my listeners. These books will be linked in the uh, episode page on uncommentarypodcast.com. And then tomorrow being Tuesday, uh, you'll hear from Dana McCain with the uh, Alabama Media Group. Dr. Heath Carter, thank you for being on Uncommentary. Thanks so much, Marty.